At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. And welcome to our first interview episode of History of the Cold War with our special guest, Daniele Boelli, from History on Fire and Drunken Taoist podcast. This is producer Dave. And first off, I wanted to thank all our Patreon, PayPal, and Venmo contributors who helped to make this episode possible by enabling us to get the equipment to interview Daniele. Should you want to donate, follow us on social media, or see photos from our episodes, please visit www history of the cold war podcast.com one word now on to the interview so we're going to be doing uh, something a little bit different today uh this is going to be one of our first uh interview episodes uh which i know a few of our my fans here uh, at history of the cold war podcast have asked for and uh, for our very first guest i'm excited to have uh, Danelli from history on fire so i want to thank you for joining us today Thank you for having me. I'm sure most of our listeners know about your podcast, uh, History on Fire, but for those who don't know, uh, would you mind telling them a little bit about your podcast? Uh, Sure. Um, History on Fire is basically a long-form podcast. Episodes are roughly about two hours long, give or take. Hour and a half sometime, two and a half sometime, but give or take around the two-hour mark. The only common theme is uh, epic stories. I just like stories with larger-than-life characters, some superpower. So I, I'm not limited to one particular point in history or, an, or a geographical area. I'm kind of fishing all over the world, all over history for particularly powerful tales. So that's really – so I've ranged from you know ancient Rome to pretty modern topics about modern U.S. So the, the space is uh, – and I, and I think I'll continue to do so because I've uh, – just recently, for the first time, I had an episode about a Chinese topic. I think I'm going to be expanding in that direction as well, of different geographical areas. So uh, I really enjoy the freedom that that gives me. Because teaching in school, I you know I teach history, but you know ultimately there are only so many subjects you're going to specialize in. But I always there's always those stories that are not in your field that they are like, yeah, but I love this one. This is a great story. I would love to talk about this one. And so the podcast uh, allows me to do that. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, you know, kind of building from that, is there anything in terms that you'd be open to share with us in terms of, you know, what you're looking to cover next or in the near future? Sure. So coming up next, I'm starting a series on Jack Johnson, who was the first black heavyweight champion boxer. And his story is pretty wild. Both him as a person, he was a quite a wild one. The reaction to his life, you know, when he won the heavyweight title, the riots broke out in 25 different states in 50 cities. is insane. So that's a cool story right there. I think I'll do three episodes on him. I'm planning to do one 
that's kind of a compare and contrast between uh, the Sand Creek Massacre in 1864 involving the Cheyenne and the My Lai Massacre from Vietnam in uh, 1968. It's a weird tale because both of them are ugly stories, right? Civilians right. getting yeah, massacred. Sure. On the other end, there is also a cool... Because th- on one end, it seemed like it's an anti-American topic because the bad guys in the story are U.S. troops. But the good guys are also U.S. troops in the sense that some of the people who stop these massacres, well, in the Sankri case, they don't stop it. They they just refuse to participate. In the um, melee where they stop the massacre are American troops. So I'm mm. kind of fascinated with the psychology of it. You know, what is the make one guy in uniform when ordered to shoot a mm. three-year-old, go mm-hmm. ahead and pull the trigger and make the next guy go, are you crazy? That's not who we are. That's not yeah. what we do. And so I, and there are some eerie parallels about the two stories, like the way the guys will refuse to go along, will be treated and all of that. So it's, uh, find it fascinating. Awesome. It's, yeah. It's not a lighthearted topic. Yeah. Let's put I, it that yeah way, I shouldn't say awesome in terms of yeah. content, but in terms of story, I think yeah. that's very interesting. I think a lot of, you know, our listeners would be interested in a story like that. Um, so it looks like, you know, you're, you're kind of looking at more or less, I would say you kind of. From what I've understood from your work so far, your first Cold War with, you know, uh, story more or less with the Milai Massacre. Is there anything else um, in, in within the Cold War or that type of time period that generally interests you that you might look at in the future? Yeah, there's one that I want to do at some point. I may it, – it's going to get more controversial than my typical episodes because, you know, nobody gets so offended if you're talking about stuff from 2,000 years ago. True. Cold War sinks, especially late Cold War, gets a lot more people's emotions rising. So I may do it just as a bonus episode, but I'm thinking there's a story that I want to do about American intervention in El Salvador. Mm -hmm. Just to make sure I'm not picking on any one particular party, I'm going to have it both during when Carter is president and the way he kind of looked the other way Mm -hmm. in the face of that squads and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. When Reagan is president, actively supporting mm-hmm. some of things that are a little disturbing in that mm-hmm. area. So I'm not making an argument that, oh, Democrats or Republicans are the yeah. good guys. It's yeah. more like – and I'm interested in not even pointing finger at any one of these guys, but more out the dynamics of the Cold War yes. make yeah. it so that these guys end up making choices that are really hard to justify from mm-hmm. outside a context. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you can kind of understand within yeah. the context. That doesn't mean you approve of them, but you can mm-hmm. sort of see the logic for why, why they end up was. doing it. Yeah, how, how they – I think for our show, you know, so far we've done – and I think that's, you know, one of the hallmarks that we agreed to in the very beginning when we did our show was, you know, trying to understand, you know, both sides of the argument. Mm-hmm. And although, you know, I'm not endorsing, you know, what particular people said or did, sure. at least trying to on some level understand yeah. – why they made the decisions that they made. Of course. And, you know, I think as all good historians, I think, you know, that's what a lot of people strive to kind of do. I think that's going to be the goal. But of course, you know, in the, not just modern, I mean, this is the political climate today, but it's been the political climate a lot of the time. People tend to get riled up as soon as your your interpretation is not clearly black and white. Yeah. I mean, you're clearly going to have people who hate your guts if you take a black and white argument, mm-hmm. but at least you also have the ones who support it. Mm-hmm. When you take a more nuanced approach, you usually end up having both sides annoyed with you. Yeah. So that's going to be yeah. a good risk. And, you know, I think that that's one of the perennial risks 
for historians, but also I think it's just because that's the nature of truth, right? Mm-hmm. You know, most of the time, things aren't black and white, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Yep. And I think that that's what sometimes gets us in trouble is when you tell the truth. Definitely. Um, you know, that that being said, I mean, where are, can you share with me some of your thoughts on the Cold War in general, uh, I guess, in terms of the period? I think building on what we were saying about the El Salvador story, but more in general about I mean, because the El Salvador story is a microcosm of the Cold War as a whole. The thing that I find both fascinating and horrifying about the Cold War is the black and white mentality, is the fact that there's a line drawn in the sand and the approach is you're either on one side or the other. You are with Stalin or you are with a super conservative interpretation of American politics and there's nothing in between. And it's Mm -hmm. kind of like that obviously makes things hard for a lot of people who don't want to join either side Mm -hmm. in that sense or even if they prefer one over the other still they are not by any stretch of the imagination in one camp or another Mm -hmm. so that's one thing that i find uh, interesting about the cold war the reduction of human complexity to just these two choices and that's all you can pick Mm -hmm. so i it's a tricky time. It's a tricky time because it um, it's based on fear a lot. It's yeah. a tricky time because uh, um, it really reinforces this this uh, environment in which nuance get killed along the way. Yeah, no, I think you're definitely right. I think you know a lot of people they have to gravitate. You know, sometimes for their own survival, especially. I mean, yes, definitely in America, mm-hmm. where you know you have to pick a side and you have to be clear, or you might be in trouble. But in other places, you know, we we did an episode in Indochina, mm-hmm. right? And you know, those who didn't necessarily support the French, uh, the, and they didn't, they might not necessarily believe in in communism and mm-hmm. the, the Viet Minh, but a lot of them felt they had no choice. You yeah, know, if I exactly. if I don't support the French, well, then you know, bad things are going to happen to me and my family. Yep. So even though I don't support the French imperialism, but I'm kind of stuck in this side because if I, you know, if I don't or because, you know, we're more more bourgeois or we're a higher class, you know, under the communists will be in trouble. So, you know, you get a lot of people who are stuck in some very difficult situations. And it's usually nothing good ever comes up when you're asked to pick between, you know, the proverbial rock and the hard place and you have to choose. Yeah. It's like, Pick which one you like. Is, yeah, choose your poison. It's almost like a U.S. presidential election, where, mm-hmm. right, where you have your two choices. And it's yeah. like, yeah, I don't like either one. What about the th-? It's like, nope, sorry, that's the only thing you got. Mm-hmm. And you're like, huh. Usually nothing good come out of those mm-hmm. scenarios, you know, when yeah. you have this. Um, it's kind of the feeling that I get about the Cold War. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Um, do you believe the Cold War was driven by, you know, ideological forces like many current historians in the field or do you believe that it was driven by you know because a lot of the more classic historians from the 60s and 50s argue it's more of an economic political or do you think it was kind of a combination of the two it's probably a combination of the two because of course the difference in economic system is supposedly what the whole thing is about but clearly i mean that's one of the things that's funny about the cold war when you think about it the notion that millions upon millions of people on one side clearly see the superiority of one economic system and millions and millions of other people born on the other side of the world, they clearly see the superiority of another system. If it's economics, it should be easier to tell, right? Mm-hmm. It just should be an objective science. A system mm-hmm. either works or doesn't. Mm-hmm. 
or at least if it's not an objective science, then if people are looking at conflicting evidence, you would mm-hmm. expect that a bunch of people on one side would pick the other and mm-hmm. vice versa. Mm-hmm. And instead, it does become an ideological game where mm-hmm. most people who probably have really no understanding of what each economic system really is all about, they will be flag-wavy and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we need to defend the Soviet mm-hmm. Union against mm-hmm. the capitalist pigs or, mm-hmm. no, we need to mm-hmm. squash communism because it's mm-hmm. the ultimate evil. And this, it's interesting because yes. it clearly goes mm-hmm. back to almost that tribal mentality of our side is the right one side, yeah. and clearly you guys must be idiots for picking the mm-hmm. other one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is something in, you know, in the Cold War, because you had other time periods where you had, I would say, other ideologies semi coexisted, right? Where, but in the Cold War, there was a sense that, you know, especially, if, you know, in the United States or the Soviet Union, if, if another developing world country decided to adopt socialism or adopt capitalism, mm-hmm. You know, the Soviet Union would see it as a loss to their side, and the or and or the United States would lose, see it as a loss to their side. Absolutely. Even if the place wasn't, you know, strategically important for mm-hmm. them, right? And it would become, from an ideological sense, we can't lose Vietnam. Yeah. South Vietnam cannot fall to communism. Yeah. Or you know, Central America can't go communist. Um, or you know, the Soviet Union, you know, Poland can't be democratic. Or, you know, so. You know, you have those those hardliners that are like, no. you know, if I lose, you lose one step, you it's know, all, you can't. It's yeah. all gone. The domino theory. And I think what's weird about it is that the way they define it, when they when they limit the choices to capitalism, communism, there are a bunch of systems and a bunch of people who are not either. You know, yeah. who are oh, maybe sure. yeah. slightly more left leaning or slightly more free market capitalism leaning, but they are not. They don't fit neatly in either model. Mm -hmm. But again, according to the logic of the Cold War, if you are not with us, you are against us. If you are not exactly the system Mm -hmm. we advocate, then clearly you must be a communist or clearly you are on the side of the Mm -hmm. worst aspects of capitalism. You know, I I think that's that's very true. I think the other insight that I see sometimes, or at least in my study, is that you'll see there'll be aspects that definitely go against the grain Mm -hmm. of, you know, but they'll either one of the superpowers will ignore that and you know kind of paper over just because they need them as an ally yeah. right so they'll ignore some aspect that you normally somebody else would point to and say hey that's not really capitalist or that's yeah. not really socialist but you know the superpower because they need that ally will also kind of look the other way i think there was a um, dan carlin episode in hardcore history when he's talking about the cold war and he was picking on a couple of... He was mainly talking about within the United States mm-hmm. and the dynamic inside of the country. But he had a couple of quotes regarding uh, from the chair of the House of Un-American Activities Committee, yeah. another one by the mayor of New Jersey City, about how can you tell if somebody's a communist. Mm-hmm. And these guys were giving definitions, things like, you know, if anybody associate with black people, they are mm-hmm. probably communists. Mm-hmm. If anybody say that there is discrimination against black people, they are communists. If anybody say that um, there's inequality of wealth in the United States, they are communists. And it's hilarious when you think about it because it's the 1950s. Of course, there's discrimination against black people. That's not even a... To us, it's it's a fact. It's like saying the sun is outside or saying there's inequality of wealth. Again, 
one may not even be saying it's a bad thing or something mm -hmm. needs to be changed. Mm -hmm. But when you have homeless and billionaires, yeah, there is inequality mm -hmm. of wealth. That's just a mm -hmm. fact. It's mm -hmm. not even up for debate. Yeah. But that somehow stating obvious facts mm -hmm. automatically turn you into a communist mm -hmm. is like... So suddenly you took a problem like how many true communists were in the mm -hmm. United States. I mean, yeah, you need to worry about communism. Mm -hmm. Clearly we see the results of communism mm -hmm. in many places. So bad stuff happens. But real hardcore communists in the United States were probably a really small number. Mm -hmm. When you start applying this definition, suddenly half of the country fit as yeah. communist. And now you have a real war. Or now you have any, a real... anyone you want to fit as it. Exactly. And I think that kind of goes to, you know, some of the personalities of the Cold War. You look at people like McCarthy, right? Mm -hmm. And you have those types of people. Are, are there people, you know, beyond kind of McCarthy, are there characters or leaders, people in the Cold War that, that you find interesting? I think... I mean, the, the people, the players in the game, all the politicians and all of that, they all have, uh, you know, the whole Cuban Missile Crisis with Kennedy, that was very interesting for sure. But I think one of the, um, one of the things that interests me is more if you look at the late 60s type of period, seeing how people who did not identify with the Cold Warrior model in the United States, but at the same time they were nowhere near communism, I'm interested kind of in that cultural upheaval of the 1965, 6, 7, 8, mm -hmm. around that time where the music you would listen to was, it sounded like 30 years had gone by from mm -hmm. just five years earlier. Characters like uh, Timothy Leary, for example, the mm -hmm. whole psychedelic drugs advocating, mm -hmm. not necessarily, I I'm just fascinated with how quick the transformation mm -hmm. is. And how in so many ways it was probably a reaction to how strict the worldview of the Cold yeah. War was mm -hmm. and the desire to break free from that mm -hmm. and experiment in all sorts of ways, good ways, mm -hmm. bad ways, everything in between mm -hmm. that kind of give birth to that period in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. I know like, you know, during that period to kind of build off that, you, you kind of had, you know, the whole a new generation, you know, the baby boomers and, you know, kind of people growing up in that kind of Cold War atmosphere. I grew up, you know, in the Cold War towards the very, very mm -hmm. end, you know, in the 1980s when I was a kid. I, I know that you grew up, obviously, I'm assuming in Italy uh, mm -hmm. during the Cold War. Can you maybe, I think as most of my listeners are, are Americans, can mm -hmm. you maybe share with us a little bit about what the Cold War perspective kind of was from Italy? I mean, for me, it was... Kind of similar to what we were saying about the silliness of having to pick one side or the other. Because, you know, in Italy in particular, the, even though there were many different parties, it wasn't a two-party system like in the U.S., the reality is that most of them, the two big ones were this one called the Christian Democracy that was kind of a right-wing uh, Catholic party mm -hmm. and the Communist Party, which was got pretty big. At one point, it had like 30% of the votes or something pretty huge like that. And the fact is, I didn't like either. You know, I really dislike both strongly. I definitely didn't like communists. I definitely didn't, didn't like Christian Democrats. They both seem like, yeah, I don't, I don't identify with either. And again, in the logic of the Cold War, you were pushed to like, which side are you on? And it's like, mm -hmm. yeah, how about neither? Because I really don't like, it's not that I mildly dislike them, I really dislike both. Mm -hmm. And I think that was one of the tricky things of that period of constantly having to have that discussion that you're not 
you don't subscribe to this binary vision of the mm-hmm. world mm-hmm. and instead is like yeah i'm not really picking on either side just yeah. because i don't like these guys and you don't like them either mm-hmm. doesn't mean i agree with you because <laughs> i don't like you either <laughs> you know it's yeah so I know that uh, when we first spoke, you had a, a little story about how you actually spoke to a member of the Red Brigades. Mm-hmm. Um, and we actually haven't got to that point in our show at this point. Could you share with us a little bit about who the Red Brigades were and, sure. and then your kind of interactions with this leader? Yeah, Red Brigades were kind of a very radical communist organization in um, in Italy. They... Uh, they sort of fit the prototype of what was considered a terrorist organization, even though, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm definitely not making apologies for some of the stuff that the Red Brigades have done. Their kind of terrorism was a little, usually more directed to, like there are different kinds of political terrorism. On one end, you have the ones that's directed towards civilians, Mm -hmm. where the goal is to create terror at a social Mm -hmm. level. That's really not what, for the most part, the Red Brigades did. They mostly targeted what they considered their political enemies on the mm-hmm. other side. So they would get definitely engage in violent actions against the judges or politicians mm-hmm. or members of the police or things like that, right? So they did capture the public eye in a big way. At one point, they had this famous kidnapping of the prime minister of Italy. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a big deal. And yeah. eventually they murdered him. So there's, uh, they were a big deal, no argument about it. They were really the... Then again, for the average person, even people who didn't like them, they didn't feel threatened by the Red Brigades because mm-hmm. they were not going to put a bomb in your school mm-hmm. or anything like that. So it was a terrorism with an asterisk. Mm-hmm. And in fact, one of the famous slogans of that time was uh, neither with the state nor with the Red Brigades. Mm-hmm. Because again, it's like, just because I don't like the state doesn't mean I approve of the Red, Red Brigades. brigades yeah. And just because I don't like the Red Brigades definitely doesn't mean I want to be on the side of the state. So it's, But yeah, they were quite wild. They, um, One of the leaders of the Red Brigades, this guy, Renato Curcio, uh, pretty much is one of the founders of the Red Brigades. He... He never pulled the trigger, but he was obviously mm-hmm. the inspirator behind mm-hmm. the whole thing, and probably not just uh, ideological, and probably also some of the operations and the mm-hmm. specifics. He was one of the planners. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Kurt eventually, he got, I forget, life sentence, something, something. I mm-hmm. forget which one he was convicted on, but definitely got a life sentence. He did... Uh, I don't. He was one of those life sentences where you can still have options of parole. Okay. So after he did, I forget how long—fifteen years, twenty years, something like that—they did give him a partial parole where he would be able to go out during the day and mm-hmm. come back to prison at night, that kind of thing. Okay. And so at that time, he had opened, um, and you know, it was long after. By that point, it's like early 1990s or something. Mm-hmm. The Cold War is over. There are no more brigades. Mm-hmm. It's a done deal. So he had uh, opened a publishing company, and uh, they were publishing all sorts of stuff that had mm-hmm. nothing to do with politics, too. And uh, and at one point, he published a book that my mom wrote. So then because of that, at one point when my mom was here in the U.S. and I was in Italy, I was like, 
I picked a call with him, and I forgot mm. what they had to talk about. It was basically mm. just business over mm. a publishing company. But it was a little weird to be on the phone with this guy who was literally <laughs> the face of the Red Brigades for a really long time. Wow, that's yeah. that's an amazing story. Um, you know, kind of going back to you know a lot of that, you know, this side, that side kind of argument mm-hmm. and the strict binary that a lot of people found themselves in. Do you subscribe to the theory that one side or the other kind of started the Cold War, you know, or do you think it was kind of, you know, like some historians argue now that it was a miscalculation more or less by both sides and they kind of stumbled into it? I mean, it's one of the things that if you notice, well, let's apply to the U.S., but it's not that because I think the Soviet Union would have acted very differently. If you notice, any time there's a big war like the Cold War, all the conflict, which is not even a war, there are a million conflicts mm-hmm. that are part of the Cold War. So when it, you know, first uh, you had World War Two, the evils mm-hmm. of Nazism, all of that. So mm-hmm. when that ends, okay, now you can have peace, right? Mm-hmm. No, three seconds later, the Cold War starts because there's the next enemy. Then the Cold War ends, so now it's peace and love for a long time, right? And of <laughs> course it's... So to me, it's like there's something else going on mm-hmm. where there are economic mm-hmm. and political interests mm-hmm. that if you don't have uh, this one bad guy out there, mm-hmm. we're going to have another one, but it's not real. Mm-hmm. So I think in that sense, the Cold War was, uh, it wasn't that somebody, st- it was going to happen anyway. Yeah. It was going to happen regardless because it's part of how ideological and economically mm-hmm. it works in mm-hmm. that context. So mm-hmm. I think, in, I don't, put the blame squarely on one side for mm-hmm. starting or another, I think it was. Mm-hmm. That being said, you know, because a lot of people talk, right, there's a number of historians who say that they, they cite Paul, Stalin as one of the major reasons why mm-hmm. the Cold War started. Of course. And there's a lot of, obviously, arguments around Stalin. You know, some say that he was a complicated, misunderstood kind of historical figure. Other people say that he was a villain, mm-hmm. um, a mass murderer. Uh, and others say he's, you know, the truth is somewhere in between. Do you kind of have an opinion on Stalin? I mean, as much as I like nuance, I tend to draw the line at mass murder and semi-genocide. <laughs> Usually that's where my misunderstood thing is like, no, that's where it's mm-hmm. a little. So, no, I think I tend to side with the very negative Views view of Stalin. Stalin. Mm-hmm. It's hard to spin it as make the guy look good or, no, look, he was just misunderstood. Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong, anybody, and I mean Mm -hmm. anybody, Hitler, anybody else, right? Take Mm -hmm. the worst of the worst in history. You're going to find things where you see, well, that's why they were doing what they Mm -hmm. were doing. And Mm -hmm. you can sort of at least understand the logic. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that doesn't mean that because, oh, you may have one reason for feeling how you do that Mm -hmm. then you can pass mm-hmm. so many lines as they do and mm-hmm. then it's still oh, it's still acceptable mm-hmm. because you just have to understand no, i think is okay and and i think that's one of the things that i find funny about the whole uh, stalin hitler alliance mm-hmm. for a while and then when stalin is all puzzled that hitler betrayed him because you know stalin being a paranoid freak who mm-hmm. and suddenly the one time that he's trust somebody and he was yeah. so st- so weirded out by the betrayal is because he decided to trust Hitler. Really? Mm-hmm. Jesus. What does that say about the judgment there? <laughs> yeah. You know, that always, I did always find that, you know, for being a person that was from all I read, you know, very 
paranoid, mm-hmm. didn't trust people. You know, he is. You know, he has. They say that he said that he didn't even trust himself. Yeah. Um, that he made. That yeah, he he totally. Even when all the evidence, you know, the NKVD, or the yeah. spies, the British were telling you know the Germans are ready to attack yeah. you, he still believed that you know he, that Hitler was not going to do this to him. <laughs> I know. Um, I'm sure yeah, there's some great of, cartoon you know, out of, in there. Out of all the times you trust someone, that was that was, and of all the people, that was the guy yeah. that you and you know you'd think. Again, I mean, obviously we're, we're sitting in retrospect, but you know, even before that, you know, how Hitler had betrayed the British and mm-hmm. French of with the Munich Agreement, right? Yep. So, you know, especially you know, like given the things that Hitler had written in Mein Kampf about mm. how he wanted to get rid of the Russians and how you know the the Slavs were subhumans. I mean, y- you would assume that this is a guy maybe I can only trust at arm's length, but I know, man. Stalin it's... made that that. You know, he was typically, I would say, you know, in terms of, he was very Machiavellian in terms of his, mm-hmm. and he was smart, I mean, without a doubt, in terms of his control and ability sure. to deal with people, that somehow he managed to miss that one. Yeah, kind of a big one. I yeah. will, I'm looking forward to somebody creating a South Park-style uh, Hitler-Stalin love story, because uh, that would be a fun one. Yeah. But, um, yeah, no, so, again, as much as I really like Nuance, there's a place where nuance doesn't apply, and I think Stalin is so mm. past uh, the limit that they no, sorry. Okay. Well, I know. So we talked a lot about you know the Soviet Union, and we talked a lot about the United States, and I think obviously that's important because they're they're huge figures, obviously in the Cold War. But you know, much of the fighting, you know, especially the fighting and actual dying, mm-hmm. took place, you know, in the, what we today call yeah. the developing world. Of course. And, you know, a big part of the Cold War, especially for me, which I try to emphasize in the show, which I don't think is talked a lot in the traditional literature, is, is talking about the, the whole process of decolonization mm-hmm. and how that ran in parallel with the Cold War. You know, do you have any feelings around, you know, that aspect of the Cold War? Well, I think that was one of the ways in which communism was successful and how they were able to keep the Cold War as, going, as long as they kept it, partially because they were able to recruit allies not because everybody around the world thought communism was the greatest idea, but because after having been screwed over by people who in one way or another would be associated or allied with the United States, by having screwed over by the West, a lot of places around the world were like, well, anybody who's against the West is Mm -hmm. our friend. Mm -hmm. Anybody who's against those guys is somebody who's trying to help us get our freedom. Now, Mm -hmm. of course, that's not the case because Soviet control would not be any Mm -hmm. better than... Western control, far from it. But when you have one enemy, yeah. when in your life you have these, those people over there who have been screwing you over, mm-hmm. anybody who jumps in and give you, hey, here are the guns to go after them, hey, thank you, my friend. The, yeah, uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Exactly, which I think is really the root. Like, yeah. in a few words, that to me is the Cold War, and that's why it's a problem, because mm-hmm. the whole, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, never works, right? It's <laughs> well, always... they just become your enemy in the future. Exactly. Yeah, so just, it's always Just that, give a little uh, bit of time, yeah. Yeah. So I think that is the problem. That, mm-hmm. um, and I mean, it's the same thing, like, for example, the connection with the civil rights movement, the fact mm-hmm. that the United States, part of the reason why the government responded to some civil rights movement mm-hmm. unrest was because the Soviets were able to point yeah, to major propaganda all the, yeah. exactly, to all the major discrimination mm-hmm. and racism existing in the United States that the civil rights movement mm-hmm. was bringing to the spotlight 
and they would be able to use it all around the world in all the countries that are not all made of white people to say, mm-hmm. hey, this is how they treat people who look like you. Yeah. You really want to join with the U.S.? Mm-hmm. And so, of course, in order to try to deny this propaganda victory to the Soviet, the U.S. had to start cleaning up its act mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, the ethnic decolonizing element is a huge one in the Cold War. And I think it gave the Soviet Union a lot longer a much longer shelf life than mm-hmm. they would have had if they didn't have that on their side. Mm-hmm. Kind of working off of that, you know, in terms of talking about the runway for the Soviet Union, do you think it was possible for the Soviet Union to have survived, you know, maybe through a series of reforms or, you know, because a lot of people take the position that the Soviet Union was kind of doomed, mm-hmm. you know, from its economics, yeah. you know, you know, position or its economic makeup, its structure of the society. But, you know, others argue that, you know, obviously we're looking at history from the retrospect. I mean, China theoretically has a communist system. It's not as much communist as it used to be. Of course. And, you know, they were – had just – the economy was just as bad Mm -hmm. under Mao as it was, you know, in the late 80s for the Soviet Union. True. Do you think that the Soviet Union, if things would have historically played out differently, could have survived in an alternative timeline, if you will? I think it's – Hard to tell for me. I'm not saying it's hard to tell for anybody. I don't think I have enough of the specific knowledge. I mean, I've heard the arguments before of mm-hmm. like, no, they were doomed from the start because their economy was terrible. But at the same time, what you bring up is a very mm-hmm. good point. Mm-hmm. That is like, yeah, Chinese economy was terrible as well. Mm-hmm. But look at what happened there. So honestly, I I think is beyond my level of expertise on this to actually be able to answer in a way that I feel confident. Okay. Because both arguments make sense. You know, I completely get both Mm -hmm. arguments. I can Mm -hmm. see how there were some serious structural problems with the Soviet economy. Mm -hmm. And I can also see how, look, somebody else right next door, also a big communist regime, has managed to completely change but Mm -hmm. survive. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, I I see both sides. Mm -hmm. I think kind of going with the, you know, I, we spoke a little bit about Stalin. I know, and he and you know the controversy around him. I think you know in the United States, you know one of the I guess political leaders that we always kind of run into this argument around is you know Ronald Reagan. You know, do you think? And it kind of it ties in with the end of the Soviet Union. You know, the argument goes. You know, Stalin. I'm sorry, uh, Ronald Reagan boosted mm-hmm. defense spending, and basically that what that's what drove those structural weaknesses in the Soviet Union and caused the Soviet Union to fail. Um, others argue that it wasn't Ronald Reagan at all and that the Soviet Union already had long-term structural issues and it was only, again, a matter of time. Right. Do you kind of have an opinion on the Ronald Reagan debate? Mm. It's, I think it's kind of the same thing. It's okay. like it's such a peaky – and it's a very good question, by the mm-hmm. way – but it's such a, in order to answer the question well, mm-hmm. the degree of knowledge of the topic you need to have is so super specialized that it's kind of hard to, otherwise it's a bar conversation, right? right. Like, I think yeah. that, he, it's mm-hmm. like, how do you really yeah. know? You know, it's yeah. like how much, and I think again, the degree of evidence that I've witnessed just as a historian who, sure, I'm interested, but I'm not a Cold mm-hmm. War specialist, I don't think it's enough to actually make a, a good judgment on okay. that. I think that's that's a very fair statement. I think obviously you know we haven't got to that point in our show yet. That's far way off. I haven't actually done all the reading mm-hmm. myself. I mean, I've read about it, different yeah. arguments, 
Yeah, but you know, uh, I think it's a very interesting topic. So that's kind of why I brought it up. No, in fact, when I, for example, when I do teach an overview of U.S. history, I tend to, I don't take a position on that mm-hmm. one. I just mm-hmm. say, hey, when the Soviet Union collapses, some people say it was because of forcing them into mm-hmm. overspending. Some people say that mm-hmm. it was a paper castle that was about to fall anyway. Yeah. Um, I don't know. <laughs> you guys, if you want to study mm-hmm. it more, mm-hmm. that's... Um, I guess kind of a question that builds into this, and maybe you might not have a good answer for this mm-hmm. one too, but that's not, that's totally understandable. Is you know, in recent years, I think a number of some historians and even political scientists, more so, I see it in the political scientist realm. Um, you know, they've been questioning the idea that the United States really won the Cold War. I think because mm. you know, coming out of the Cold War, we had Francis Fukuyama. You know, the end of history, kind yeah. of talking about we a little bit about the end of World War II and the end of the Cold War, right? where they thought, you know, basically the West had won, free market capitalism had kind of taken the day, and now you're starting to see arguments kind of going the opposite direction, saying that, you know, if the United States did win the Cold War, by the very least, it was a Peric victory, right? Their argument is that the Cold War, yeah, the United States kind of made its way through that kind of power struggle, but it's control or hegemony or position of authority only lasted for a few years before the world kind of started sliding into this kind of multipolar world where we see a resurgence of Russia. Mm -hmm. You know, we see China, China, um, these other great India, potentially the European Union. Um, You know, so I I guess if you have an opinion, what would be your opinion on that? Yeah, I mean, that is, to me, that's where the evidence is solid. Like, that's not even an opinion. It's a fact mm-hmm. that today there is no single, like the U.S., it doesn't have the 1989, 1990 mm-hmm. kind of degree of power over where there's really one just big superpower. Now is a considerably messy story. Mm-hmm. You know, China tomorrow decide to recall all the debts that the U.S. Mm-hmm. has with China. Mm-hmm. How long will the U.S. remain? You know, it's one of the things where... Yeah, it does seem like for the amount of effort that has gone in the Cold War, you would expect that the result would be this century of American domination. Yeah, the the Pax from America. Yeah, that doesn't look like it right now. Yeah. Good or bad, I mean, what what do you think are some of the enduring legacies of the Cold War? I think really these... um, When you consider the millions of people who have died, which is funny to say because, again, the Cold War technically never – it was a Cold War, right? Mm -hmm. It never really broke out in this open war between the Soviet Union and the United States. And yet because of all the proxy war fought all over the world, so many people have suffered and have died as a result Mm -hmm. of the Cold War that it's – yeah, it's amazing that about three minutes later – you're back with other wars, different enemies and Mm -hmm. everything else because you figure that that should be the dominant story of it all. You know, once Mm -hmm. you have this clash of the two powers and one collapses, then you have a big sigh of relief and things can go in a different direction. And instead it looks like three minutes later, the same dynamics are at play with different enemies. And so it's, um, which in some way kind of tying to the earlier question, raises question whether this is really a failure Mm -hmm. of the Cold War or this is just the way it's designed anyway, where mm-hmm. it was uh, it was never really about winning or losing in the long term. I mean, you don't want to lose for sure, but yeah. winning, it doesn't mean uh, we now rule and it's all easy. Winning also means you still need to make money on war. You yeah. still need to 
war is not just the goal to win so that you can have what you want. War is the existence of war it will give you what you want. Mm-hmm. If you take a more Eisenhower military-industrial mm-hmm. complex read mm-hmm. on the situation, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's, yeah, speaking of personalities or events, the whole debate regarding the power of the military-industrial complex, the way it drove the Cold War, and the way that's been driving things ever since is a very interesting one. Because mm-hmm. then it makes you think, yeah, maybe it's not ideological at all. Maybe the ideology is purely a good excuse that give people reasons to wave a flag, but it's really about some big financial interests that are behind it. Interesting. So in your view, what are kind of the important lessons that we can draw from the Cold War, I guess, for our current time, kind of building off of what you, some of the things you just said? Yeah, I think this idea that there are two choices is doesn't even matter what the topic is. If you're asked between A or B, and there's nothing else, that's a trick question. That's a bad setup because it never leads to anything good when you're to this side or that side and no other option. Mm-hmm. I think, and if, in many ways, it's kind of like when you look at the current political climate, it feels that way, right? Mm-hmm. That if you, you are either on um, super left-wing or super right-wing, you are mm-hmm. either with those guys or... It, and I think it's the number one problem that's... Po- well... Okay, it's the number two problem that's poison in American politics. I think mm-hmm. the number one problem is money. It's just the degree mm-hmm. of corruption mm-hmm. that uh, is yeah. inevitably part of the system. But number two, ideologically, mm-hmm. is the fact that there's no willingness to have uh, a reasonable discussion where you can mm-hmm. listen to somebody who, quote-unquote, is from the other side, and you can yeah. have a discussion where it's like, oh, let me look at the other. Hey, it turns out you're yeah. right about that. I'm actually going to side with you. And then the other guy realized that maybe you do have a point. This discussion never happened. It's mm-hmm. all like, we are right. No, shut up. We are right. Mm-hmm. And it feels like this is very much what the current political climate looks like. Mm-hmm. Even though it has nothing to do with the Cold War, mm-hmm. the dynamics are the same. Mm-hmm. And they are completely poisonous dynamics. I and mean, they have led to horrible things in the mm-hmm. Cold War. And I see them leading to horrible things right now. Yeah, I think... I would agree that you know when you have that binary, it's it's hard for truth to exist yeah. in that binary because, you know, in the binary between Group A and Group B, you know they because if it doesn't completely fold with one of those groups, so then obviously then it can't be talked about, right? It has to be either dis either I guess gotten rid of or hid. Mm-hmm. You know, so that I think that that gets rid of our ability for nuance, kind yep. of like what you were talking about. You know, sometimes, especially for these broad, complex issues or challenges that we face today, you know, this one side might be right on C through D, but maybe the other side has some great, better ideas for E through F. And Absolutely. we don't really have the ability, if we're stuck in those binaries, to kind of take those books off the shelf or look at those other opinions yeah it's uh i forget i mean i've heard it from several people but one of the things that i've heard lately a lot the how is how is it possible that if you know somebody's position on abortion you also know their position on global warming you know they have nothing to do with each other and yet somehow you're supposed to that if you buy into an ideology you need to buy it a through z Mm -hmm. and i will defend which obviously means that you haven't looked at the facts because Mm -hmm. Nothing is that clear. Like, what are the odds that one ideological viewpoint got all the answers correct and yeah. the other one got them all wrong? Mm-hmm. Come on. Nothing works like that. Yeah. 
as as uh, I sur- Bill, as Bill Clinton used to say, even a broken clock is right. <laughs> right, <today."> exactly. <laughs> so I think with that, do you, do you have any kind of uh, final thoughts or anything you'd like to share before we end? I really think that what I hope to do through a lot of my work, what I hope to that people pick up from other sources is really a taste for not being slaves to ideology, to a taste for nuance, a taste for being willing to make up your mind based on the evidence as opposed to make up your mind first and then figure out what evidence you can twist to justify the position mm-hmm. you took. You know, whatever stance you take should be the result of having looked at conflicting evidence. It shouldn't be, first I pick whatever seemed right to me just because, and mm-hmm. then I will twist the data to fit mm-hmm. my agenda. Mm-hmm. Which sounds so simple, right? It sounds like, well, that's just <laughs> yeah, the minimum, I, the bar is so yeah. low for intellectual honesty. And yet the overwhelming majority of politicians, commentators, everything seems to be so below mm-hmm. that bar where as ridiculous as it sounds, saying something like this, which should be obvious, is not exactly mm-hmm. an original deep thought, mm-hmm. is kind of radical because nobody yeah. does it. Yeah, I think in, unfortunately in our current time, you know, it's become, yeah, very radical. And you don't, I, I mean, just to kind of, I remember when I was a kid, I, I used to watch uh, the news, like, or, you know, meet the press, and mm-hmm. they would have, you know, the Speaker of the House who was a Democrat and, you know, a Republican minority leader, and they w- could have an adult conversation mm-hmm. about what was happening with the economy or the budget. And they were bringing up, you know, kind of rational points, more or less. And today, on um, almost any of the cable channels, you'd, you'd see people are yelling oh, yeah. at each other. You know, and it's kind of it's kind of sad that we, in some ways, have reached a point where we're we're not capable of dialogue b- between each other, even if we disagree on some you know larger principles. You know, so um, some of it is clickbait. Some of yeah. it is driven that way. It's like nobody's gonna sit to read through this complicated conversation or rather really smart people will do that, but everybody's going to click if you can portray one side as the enemy of everything that's mm-hmm. decent. And can you believe what these crazy guys did? Then it's yeah. like, oh, outrage, yes. Mm-hmm. Or be very afraid of what these guys are doing. Mm-hmm. It's framed that way, a mm-hmm. lot of it via media. Mm. Well, I want to thank you again for, for, for coming to talk with us, and I really enjoyed this. Um, you know, if do you want to kind of talk a little bit more about where they can my my listeners who aren't familiar with History on Fire can, can find you? Sure. So there's uh, if you look for History on Fire on iTunes, Stitcher, or anywhere else where you download podcast, the website is called historyonfirepodcast.com. So easy enough. And then from there you can find all the episodes. I tend to retire some of the old episodes, so there may be a few that you see. Hey, there's one, two, and three. Where does uh, five through ten go? Um, I kind of use the Dan Carlin model that after I have episodes available for free for long enough, I start retiring some of the old ones and those I just put up for sale on my website. Okay. But all the other ones, are there should be plenty free on iTunes or even on my website to to get you to find out whether you're interested or not. Okay. Well, thank you very much. As always, for our fans, if you guys want to check out our website for the files on on social media, or if you're interested in learning more about the Cold War, uh, check us out at uh, com. one word.
At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.